coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. And a happy Monday to you. Hopefully your uh, Easter or Passover holiday was fantastic. Uh, I know uh, we still have folks in the community who are uh, celebrating Ramadan. I say celebrating. I don't know about like not eating all day. I don't, that, that to me is not a celebration, but uh, I understand the, the relevance and the significance. We are joined this afternoon with City Councilman Amir Faroki, who happens to be my city councilman here in the city of Atlanta. So I want to thank Amir for giving us some time. How was your weekend? Uh, it was good. It was my daughter's second birthday, so we celebrated that with the in-laws uh-huh. and uh, had a lovely, rain, all the rain aside, a lovely weekend. But it's great to be with you, Ron. Thanks for thanks for having me. I do appreciate that. Let's just dive right on in because uh, there are a, a few topics that are, of course, right atop most folks' discussion lists here in the city of Atlanta. Cop City seems to be getting a lot of it. And I'm going to be honest with you. I, I feel like, uh, as you are my city councilman, You've managed to sort of fly under the radar and not get a lot of the heat and the vitriol behind that. And I think some of it may stem from you being absent from a vote, uh, a crucial vote on the continuation of it. But I also feel like you've been one of the more calmer, cooler heads to even talk about this. So for the listeners, give us what your take is on Cop City, because I think it's a little nuanced, but it also kind of makes a little sense. Yeah. First of all, I'll say my email inbox suggests that I'm not escaping... uh... (laughs) (laughs) Feedback on it one way or the other. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we had a vote in 2021, uh, which uh, authorized the then mayor to enter into a lease agreement with the Atlanta Police Foundation to, to build the police and fire training facility. Mm. At that time, that year, uh, I was on the Public Safety Committee. Um, and leading up to the, to the vote, um, you know, we had a vote on this coming out of committee. And I voted for it coming out of committee before it went to full council and did so in large part because we spent a lot of time reducing the amount of acreage that the the training center would use and putting in place tree replacement protection components that ultimately would result in zero net loss of tree canopy. Mm. Um, I was then absent for the full vote uh, in September of 2021 because I was on parental leave a long plan for him to leave that month. So that's explains my absence from that vote. Um, but look, I, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's not a black and white issue in my opinion. You know, I, I think there's two pieces to this. One is, do you believe we need uh, new police and fire training facilities? And I fell on the camp of unequivocally. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, our current facilities are abysmal, mm-hmm. um, barely inhabitable. Our fire department doesn't have a burn tower to train in. There's all these, deficiencies so you know you know table stakes we need new training facilities uh i think the second piece of this is this the right location uh you know a, a largely kind of forested area a good bit of which was clear-cut about 20 25 years ago if you look at google maps so it's not virgin forest it hasn't been touched in centuries mm. um but uh and that's a fair question i mean could could you do this in less acreage could you find a different site, you know, potentially though none, none has really emerged, uh, under two mayors. Uh, so I, you know, I get the, the reticence of folks who say, Hey, let's protect the tree canopy. Cause it's a, it's our, it's our ocean, our mountains here. And, mm. um, we should do what we can to protect it where possible. And I think we've done that legislatively and in the lease here, we're going to open up one of the city's largest parks, uh, as part of this, uh, that's currently not, uh, kind of trail, uh, accessible, and that's going to be a huge asset to folks in DeKalb and to the city. Um, so that's a, a long-winded way of saying, look, I, I remain 
in favor of it. You know, I do have some reservations about the environmental component. And so I, I, I worked a couple of years ago when I was on the public safety committee to put some guardrails on it. Uh, but do we need the facility? Yes. And at the time where the vote was taken two years ago, um, you know, I think the other component to this is uh, there's $60 million in private funds that would be matched by about $30 million in public funds. Mm. So it's a good deal for the city, frankly, to, to get this done. And that's, you know, that's in some ways a good way to steward taxpayer dollars. Now there are folks who will say, you know, they do not want to see police get any sort of new training facility. And I'm never going to see eye to eye with those folks, but um, you know, I, like most things, the more close you get to it, the more complex it gets. And uh, I think all things considered on the table, this was the right decision. And then you speak to the uh, the need for police training. Uh, we are on the air this afternoon in an afternoon uh, in America where ho-hum, another mass shooting occurs, and a Louisville police having to respond to it. We saw in the Nashville school shooting how there seemed to be a bit of a more coordinated response and officers going into a, a scene where, uh, you know, a perpetrator with an, an assault weapon was, uh, you know, in the midst of harming children and, 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 and school employees. So the need, the need obviously does exist for something like that. Uh, as you mentioned before, there's been the question of how much turf does it take to do this? Yeah, look, uh, we, we live in a country, the only country in the world where we see these mass shootings happen over and over and over again. So clearly we're not doing something right. And that can, you can point your finger to a lot of political inaction around lack of an assault weapons ban mm. Uh, inadequacy of background checks and um, all these steps we could be taking uh, to reduce the number of mass shootings we see in this country, which should be a, a moral imperative for us all. Um, you know, going back to your question about the training facility, uh, you know, the, the footprint of it, 85 acres and a 360 plus acre area um, also includes space for the, the horses and for uh, driving training and a host of things that do require some elbow room. Um, but there's other things, there's other elements of it, like a shooting range that you could theoretically put indoors there. It's an outdoor range. Uh, so there's, you know, there's things on the margins. You could probably say this could be done in a smaller footprint and many other police departments around the country do these things in a smaller footprint or break them up around multiple sites. Uh, so that it's, it's a, you know, it's a fair question to have, but it's, you know, it's oftentimes the decisions we make, in government are imperfect and you, you're doing the best with what's what's in front of you. Do you think, uh, and by the way, we're on with uh, Atlanta City Councilman Amir Faroki. Uh, uh, Amir is my city councilman, actually, and uh, your, your, your coverage is sort of like uh, Old Fourth Ward and kind of uh, amoebas out a little bit in that realm. Uh, uh, do you think that the the, the Cop City PR has been handled correctly by all parties involved since its inception? Uh, so yeah, I, I do. I represent Midtown, Downtown, yeah. Old Fourth Ward, uh, Inman Park, Candler Park, Ponce Hounds, the smallest council district in the city uh, because it's the most densely populated. Mm. Uh, a little bit of everything happens in it. Uh, to your question, though, uh, around PR narrative, I mean, look, I don't. You know, this is, falls on the executive branch to how they want to communicate uh, the position or narrative around the training facility. Uh, I, I do think. The counter narrative, the opposition narrative, has been um, pretty precise and compelling for folks who may not understand all the elements and the facts on 
what's getting built, why it's getting built, the environmental protections in place. So, uh, you know, could the narrative have been handled better by um, by the city uh, if if you believe that this is the right thing to do? Mm. Sure, yeah, I, I think there's there's probably an element to that. Yeah. Well, and and, element of truth to that. Yeah. and and spanning from two different you know mayors' uh, tenures, uh, I, I I think I can understand where where some of the the ball gets dropped a little bit. It just it just seems uh, like there's been opportunity to even just for the for the picture of it all to extend an olive branch to say, Hey, Hey, you know what? We've lost lives. We've had injuries. People are shooting at each other. That's, you know, there's, there's been, uh, you know, damage to property. This needs to stop. Can we sit down and have a civil dialogue? And I just don't feel like anyone has made that overture whatsoever. Yeah. Um, that's an interesting reflection. You know, I, I do think the mayor's done the right thing by creating a second advisory task force that has a lot of opponents on it. Uh, it has not been um, articulated as a kind of let's sit down and you know, stop kind of the, the level of tension and violence that we've seen to date. Mm. Uh, and, um, and maybe to your point, it could have been framed that way. Uh, but I, you know, I, I do think the mayor's done a, a, an admirable job. Uh, convening contrary voices, uh, the proof will be and where those conversations lead and what that means for the final outcome at the facility. But I think ultimately everyone wants you know, no further loss of life and no further violence and destruction um, associated with the forest and and or the build out of the facility. So while we're talking a little bit about uh, stewarding from one, one mayor's tenure to another, uh, and I don't mean to just put this spotlight solely on those two individuals, but uh, as a city councilman, do you feel a distinct difference in the environment, the relationship between the city and the state since uh, Mayor Dickens has been sworn into office? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the, the mayor, um, Mayor Dickens has done a really strong job of reaching out to Governor Kemp and finding common ground, whether it's on economic development or public safety, uh, on frankly opposing the Buckhead City movement. Mm. Uh, and, you know, there's clearly philosophical differences and political differences they have. I mean, they're from opposite parties, but uh, I think one of the things we tend to lose sight of in America today is that even between opposite parties, there's a lot of shared interest uh, and shared goals and, and benefits that we all want to see. Um, in our day-to-day lives, and I think they've they've managed to capture that together. You know, I, uh, I think during the previous administration with Mayor Bottoms, who uh, I think was also predisposed to collaboration, uh, you had a a flashpoint pretty pretty early on with COVID hitting and different approaches to shutdown and to mask wearing, and you saw some of that that flare up, which uh, probably exacerbated other issues that the mm. city and the state may dis- disagree about. Uh, but uh, Mayor Dickens has done an excellent job. You know, as a steady hand on the ship and engendering confidence beyond beyond the city limits, which uh, he should be commended for. Yeah, there do, there does seem to have been almost from an outset uh, uh, an ability an inability on the part of Mayor Bottoms and Governor Brian Kemp to see eye to eye on much of anything. They they would argue about different hues of blue that the skull, uh, the color of the sky was. Uh, it just it's it just seemed to be frustrating to watch as a citizen of the city and the state that. There could be no common agreement on things that were pretty obvious for the longest time. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, politics is driven in large part by personalities, and so 
sometimes personalities are predisposed to certain approaches, but it also is a reflection of the moment and the time and public sentiment. And I think, you know, who knows if you would flip the two, Mayor Bottoms and Mayor Dickens in their, their tenures, what the relationship would have been like five year, four or five years ago with, you know, a, a fictional Dickens uh, and a fictional Kemp then. But, you know, the, the environment was different. Uh, the issues on the table were different. And so I, I do think there's a, a recognition of the last couple of years that we're going to go further together than we're going to go at each other's throats. And, um, you know, everyone in the in the state depends on Atlanta's success. And frankly, it, it, we depend on their success, too. And so it's 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 worth finding common ground. And uh, that's the, that's the environment we're in today. You know, politics is long uh, in a short amount of time and you know, things can be very different in six months from now. But right now we're in a good position. Yeah. All right. We're on with uh, City Councilman Amir Faroki, my city councilman, Amir Faroki from the city of Atlanta. More with him after the break. It's The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, and on your preferred podcast platform. We're back with City Councilman Amir Faroki, who covers my turf and a lot more of it, actually, uh, Midtown and Inman Park. And we, we, we discuss this. Uh, you, you cover a short amount, uh, a small amount of turf, actually, Midtown and Old Fort, but you cover a lot of people because it's a densely populated uh, stretch of Atlanta. It, it's also a pretty diverse stretch of Atlanta, too. Uh, do you find that challenging to represent such a diaspora of, of, of humanity? Uh, no, I, I find it exciting and invigorating. And in many ways, it's a, uh, a snapshot of the entire city. You have a central business district. You have cultural institutions, uh, tourist destinations, parks where people spend their time, whether they live here or they're coming from out of town, the belt, East Side Trail, the Beltline. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, it's it got a lot of vibrancy, and um, I find that um, a, a joy to represent. It's sometimes a challenge, but it's always a joy. Uh, and, and, and to your point, the population is quite diverse, uh, maybe increasingly affluent through parts of the district that used to not be, mm. uh, but it still maintains the largest community of Section 8 residents in the American South and yeah. in in parts of the 04th Ward. And so it, and those residents aren't going anyway. So you have uh, tremendous economic diversity and uh, opportunities for improving folks' lives. Do you find that to be a challenge too, though? I mean, we, Atlanta is famously a large city without public housing. And, uh, you know, I was watching the uh, the documentary that uh, King Williams has been putting together over time and, and, and the evisceration of public housing in uh, the lead up to the Olympic Games. Uh, you know, having li- living in Fold- Old Fourth Ward, as I have for the last few years, uh, I noticed that we, we have a housing challenge. And I'm also a real estate agent. Let me throw that out there real quick. I'm also a real estate agent. So finding affordable housing for uh, for folks who don't make, uh, I don't know, more than $150,000 a year is a challenge. Uh, have we learned anything from the gentrification of uh, Midtown that we can apply to Old Fourth Ward and the rest of your district? So uh, this is an issue that I, I love talking about because uh, it, it, it's very basic form. It's a supply and demand issue, right? Yeah. We have more folks who want to live in the city, in the metro area than we have housing. The, the build out of new housing is mm-hmm. not going as fast as demand. So prices rise. Um, you know, I, I do think that on one hand, there's a role for government to step in and either incent or build true low-income housing. So you know, housing for folks making, say, less than 30K a year. Mm. Uh, but to your point, I mean, we need housing at all price points, whether you're making 50K a year, 100K a year, 150K a year, there's demand across the board. And the best thing city governments can do and county governments can do is to, in some ways, get out of the way and let, let folks 
uh, let folks build. And sometimes that goes to reducing red tape and the permitting process, but it also goes to rethinking zoning and what we need to provide for folks uh, in the city. And that, that gets into that NIMBY, YIMBY argument at a granular level. But, uh, you know, we need to allow for more creative forms of density, whether it's duplexes and quadplexes, ADUs to, um, you know, 10, 15, 20-story buildings that are going to house folks. And this is a situation where I think the the only way to address housing supply shortfalls at scale uh, is to to let the market meet that that demand. But the market can also have a negative impact on long term residents. Uh, we know that gentrification, you know, creates property tax implications for folks who have lived in an area for a long time that may not want to leave an area, but also find themselves compelled to maybe having to tap out because the property taxes continue to climb and they can't afford those increases. Yeah, look, there's plenty of neighborhoods across Atlanta that have experienced that, including ours, the old Fourth Ward. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is where government also can and should play a role, right? Are you ensuring that folks are taking advantage of homestead exemptions? Can you increase them for seniors? That tends to fall at the county, not mm. the city. Uh, are you looking for ways... Uh, to tap city funds and county funds and philanthropic funds to keep elderly folks in their homes if they need a roof repair, a new paint job, kitchen renovation. Like, there, there's programs out there that exist that the disconnect tends to be folks don't know about them and the communication mm. around those programs uh, is not great. Um, but yeah, so I don't think any city wants to be a place where folks who have built their lives in a neighborhood and been a fabric of a neighborhood and built a neighborhood um, or forced to leave because of rising costs. And this is this is where government needs to step in and you know take out some of the sharp edges of of a kind of free market property market. Well, I'll say this too. as again, as a real estate agent, I remind folks all the time that if they're in a scenario where you know they're living in a home that you know may be in need of some repair to meet modern uh, you know market conditions, uh, like I work with a company called Curbio that allows uh, residents of properties that you know need a fresh coat of paint, maybe a new roof, some new flooring, et cetera, and so on. That uh, you know they they can get the work done before the house is sold too, so they can actually cash out instead of uh, I think being taken advantage of in large part by flippers who take the profit themselves and uh, and make the money. So uh, that quick little plug right there. I, I, I don't need you to comment on that. I just didn't know if even you knew a company like that existed. That gets no, I did on. not. Yeah. So that's a, yeah. that's a useful, uh, a useful tool in and of itself. The Atlanta medical center is in your council district. Uh, or, uh, in part, it's actually yeah. split between two council districts. Well, that, yeah. that makes it even more uh, challenging to deal with. Yeah. What is the latest that you've heard on uh, any sort of replacement health uh, for, providing or uh, I know that there's been a moratorium on uh, looking into redeveloping the property. What is the latest on that? It's been pretty quiet on that front. Yeah. So we do have a six month moratorium in place on redeveloping the property or in, in allowing the, yeah, we take, we do have a six month moratorium in place to, uh, to not allow for rezoning uh, or redeveloping the property beyond its current use. Mm. Um, I think that was intended to, um, put some screws to Wellstar and say, hey, you can't make a quick buck out of this. I will say the flip side of that is I, as someone who represents the neighborhood, including uh, another part of my district, uh, which includes the Atlanta Civic Center site, which has been a black hole for yeah. decades. Um, 
you know, I, I don't want to see a similar scenario happen with the former AMC site. And so, uh, you know, that, that hospital building is old and outdated. It's a, it's a big reason why other hospital systems didn't swoop in to buy it, that it had been largely sold or peddled to be sold for a number of years. And no one, there are no takers because it's going to require massive investment to bring it up to mm-hmm. modern hospital code. And so, I, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with the site. There's a lot of buildings, a lot of parcels on both sides of Boulevard. It's mm-hmm. not just a big hospital building. But uh, I could foresee a situation where you ultimately see mixed-use development through their housing, shopping, office that has a medical component um, that allows for some level of medical uh, care access for, for neighbors and folks in, in the area. But that there's, I have not heard of such a proposal. Nothing's on the table. I haven't. I've not been privy to anything. So don't <laughs> think that. I'm not suggesting that's in the works. I, I honestly have had no conversations with uh, AMC about it um, or any other any other kind of interested parties. Back with Amir Faroki, City Councilman from the City of Atlanta. After this, on the Ron Show. This is the Ron Show on America One Radio. So we spent a good deal of the show today talking with my city councilman, Amir Faroki from the city of Atlanta on a broad range of uh, issues. So I think because you're on the transportation committee, this is probably right in your wheelhouse to start talking about transportation issues. Everybody wants to bring up DeKalb Avenue, <laughs> but but I, I mean, listen, potholes exist everywhere. They just, they, they all seem to uh, eventually land on DeKalb Avenue. I don't know if they're migrating slowly or what, but <laughs> there is actually a mechanism like if, and I catch myself doing this all the time, I'll find some new divot and then hit it and then just cuss because it's like, I didn't see it. I didn't know about it. I know about the huge uh, divot or whatever you want to call it. There, It's almost like a canyon in front of the BP on Boulevard. I know just to avoid that lane, but I don't, it's hard to predict the rest of them, but there is actually a mechanism to reporting potholes and getting them fixed. Yeah, you can call through three one one, which is our non-emergency city service number, and report a pothole. There is a uh, long name pothole posse that will go out and fill it uh, with 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 some relative efficiency, and so that is, that is a model. But uh, that is an option folks have. But I, I will note, I mean, your frustration, whether it's to Cab Avenue, which is a rightful frustration, or other yeah. streets, is our infrastructure. Uh, is not great, our, our, our road infrastructure. And on one hand, that's due to the fact that lots of people who don't pay property taxes drive in and out of the city every day and put wear and tear on them. Um, so we, we bear a disproportionate burden, uh, city residents do, to, to keep up with that cost of repair. Um, and the other is, you know, let's be honest, the city hasn't been great at, at just general maintenance of its infrastructure. And so this is a point of I think frustration and a goal for many council members and hopefully this mayor uh, and the new DOT commissioner. But these are not items that tend to move quickly. You got to find the money, you got to find a contractor, and that takes time. And a lot of folks want to point to COVID. Oh, well, COVID, the pandemic. But this isn't this isn't a problem that just sprung up after the pandemic. As, as you mentioned, the city hasn't always been really good at this. And there is the funding component and the suburbanites coming in and tearing up our roads and contributing not a bit to it. Is there is there some way to lean on the state a little bit more or to create some sort of, you know, regional transportation slush fund of some sort that would, would help alleviate that? And how do you convince suburbanites that you look at the city and go, oh, the city's in disrepair. You guys are part of the problem. Yeah, look, at first, I don't, I think, this is true for cities across yep. the country, yep. right? There's ebb and flow to how yep. people live their day and come in and out. So I don't, I mean, everyone from Marietta and Coweta County and uh, Carrollton are always welcome to come to the city and work and play and you know, uh, spend time. Or, you know, no one's going to say no. I think it's part and parcel of being uh, the 
kind of jobs and entertainment center of the region. Um, but we do need to find ways to take better care of our, our roads and make sure we're repairing them at a more rapid rate. Uh, and you know, what are the funding tools for doing so? And we, we do what we've had infrastructure bonds. We're in the middle of a $750 million one right now. We have T-spots where we tax ourselves a, an extra penny or so. So that when someone does come in from out of town or out from the suburbs and they buy a sandwich or they spend their, their dollars and their sales tax supply, they are chipping in a little bit to, to that cost. I mean, you've seen some more uh, progressive approaches around congestion pricing so that if you drive into the city at a certain time of day, you're paying a little bit to come in. Uh, mm. And that has, you, you see that in London and Stockholm and Singapore, Manhattan has tried it. Uh, and so I, it, it's, a, it's a model that some folks embrace. It's not clear to me. And in um, theory, I like the idea. It's not clear to me what that means for um, businesses that are affected by their workers coming in and out. And yeah. especially at a time when we're not quite sure what the future of work looks like or what it will be. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, you know, how, how often are folks coming into an office? What does the central business district look like 10 years from now? Uh, is the office space being used in the same way right now? We're not, we're not seeing that. And so we're starting to see the pressure toward residential conversions. So how people move about is shifting a bit mm-hmm. and uh, we don't know where it's going to land. And so it's, it's tough to make, make halls around congestion pricing, for example. It would also require state approval, and it, it, it's not on the table in Atlanta right now. Right. But um, it, is a, it is an approach you've seen in some places to, to limit uh, traffic flow at certain times of day and also to raise revenue. Well, it also would perhaps have a ripple effect on uh, the demand for housing in the city, which we discussed already, uh, you know, is already uh, we full, you know, I, people say that we full, but we, we are kind of full. We don't have the housing for the folks that want to live here, as you mentioned before. Um, but that brings- I, I'll interrupt you and say, yes, but we have plenty of room to, to build more housing. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where there's opportunity. Right. So, uh, which leads me to uh, the, the MARTA kerfuffle. Um, it's, it's no secret that MARTA uh, doesn't really have the infrastructure, especially when it comes to the hardline rail, for a city or a metro area of this size, we don't have connections going to the battery. We don't, and that's not a that's not an Atlanta problem or a Fulton County problem. That is a regional issue, uh, overcoming uh, misconceptions about you know race and racism, et cetera, and so on. But you guys, you guys are turning an eye, uh, casting a side eye a little bit towards Marta and saying uh, we need to see the books because. You guys are getting all this money, and you're telling us, "Oh, look, more buses," and and folks aren't happy about it. Yeah, so you're referring to this recent call for an audit of the More Martyr program that yep. the council made a few weeks ago. Um, just just quick historical context: in 2016, Atlanta voters voted to tax themselves uh, an extra half penny on top of the one penny we already pay into mm-hmm. the Martyr system, specifically for transit expansion within the city limits. So not to the system writ large in North Fulton or to cab, et cetera. And that was going to raise roughly $2.7 billion over 40 years. And as those dollars came in, projects would be identified and executed. Uh, and so over the first six years of, of revenue collection, 2017 till, till now, they've collected roughly mid $350 million, uh, right around there. Mm. Roughly 40 percent plus or minus has been used on bus service uh, enhancement and expansion which almost zeroes out the entire amount they said they were going to spend over 40 years on bus service enhancement and expansion Mm -hmm. Uh, and so they've they've come to council the transportation committee a number of times in the last six months and we've pressed for more clarity on a couple things one 
what projects are going to get done, what's going to need to get cut, because inflation has driven up the cost of projects significantly, so you have to make some hard decisions. Uh, I think we all anticipated that to be the case, but that process has moved in fits and starts. Uh, we've been curious and um, I feel like a bit in the dark on whether the dollars spent on bus service expansion and enhancement at a time when bus ridership plummeted during the pandemic, yeah. whether those dollars were really spent on just maintaining existing service, so service that existed prior to prior to the tax being collected, um, which would be outside the bounds of what those dollars could be used for. And so we got some some answers, but not clarity as to how those dollars have been spent. And then there's concerns over how much is being spent on consultants for a number of projects, mm -hmm. whether it's a light rail project or a bus project. Uh, and we need some clarity on that. So yeah, we've called for an audit. MARTA has agreed. They're working out the details with the, the mayor's administration. Uh, and hopefully we'll see some, some progress and have a better understanding of how those taxpayer dollars have been spent soon. So part of uh, part of Marta's footprint is the, the uh, Atlanta Streetcar Project, which right now kind of does a figure eight from uh, Centennial Park to the MLK area. Doesn't really serve a population. I, I, listen, I'll admit I've used it from time to time to get downtown to catch Marta to go to the airport because even that additional time it might take me. I mean, Uber and Lyft have just gotten ridiculously expensive to catching a flight, so I can walk the two blocks to catch the streetcar when it's running and and get to the airport but it doesn't really serve a population right now and so there's a little pushback on the streetcar expansion but i notice a lot of the the grousing about the streetcar expansion is that oh my gosh it's coming to the belt line i i don't understand why folks aren't aware that that was the plan all along that that there was supposed to be some element of light rail along the belt line is it has it just that this has taken so long now that folks have gotten used to what the belt line is that they don't want to see a change in it yeah, I, I sure. I, I think that's probably right. I think there's an element of human nature here, which is, um, you know, people uh, kind of want to protect a space they like, right? They don't want to see any change to it, and yeah. irrespective of whether they knew about the long planned streetcar expansion along the Belt Line or not, you know, I, I, I get that there's a a response in opposition because folks don't want anything to change. Um, but I, I believe, and I think many folks believe that the the Belt Line is as much a a linear white walking, biking park space as it is a, a transit corridor for some sort of transit. I, I, I think your analysis of the existing streetcar is correct. It's been, you know, I think a, a failure in many ways. It doesn't have high ridership. It's not going where people need it to go. I think tourists just hop out of their hotel and walk to, to a lot of these places <laughs> yeah. that, that was meant to connect. I'm glad you've written it. I've written it too a few times, but for the most part, the, the headways are not frequent enough to, to make it worthwhile. And, um, we're not seeing obviously the destinations where, uh, where there's demand. I think that the opposite is true on the East side. True. Right? We always talk about transit, you know, what should come first, the, the chicken or the egg. Do you need the people before you build the transit? Or do you build the transit and then the people come on the East side trail, Pond city market, uh, and down South, you have the people, the egg has been, the egg has been laid between all the new commercial uh, office building space going in restaurants, mm -hmm. residences, there's people there. Um, that deserves some sort of transit connectivity. Uh, I think it's fair to say, is the streetcar expansion as it's currently set to be implemented, if, if that's all that's going to happen, does it really get people where they need? Maybe if they're going from the east side into a, a game at the arena uh, or to, the, to catch a ride to the airport or train to the airport, sure. Um, but ultimately, we need to seek complete connectivity around the Beltline. And frankly, I would argue... Uh, 
the most in need transit expansion on the east side right now is east-west connectivity from the Pot City Market area into into Midtown, like a bus rapid transit line on North Avenue, for example, which is one of the more martyr projects that may come later. But you could argue it's a more cost-efficient way to to get folks where they need to go uh, if you're on that part of the east side. Yeah, I, listen, I, I, selfishly, when I hear that the, the streetcar expansion will take me to Pont City Market, I'm all for that because a, I don't like I don't like paying to park anywhere, uh, and who does? But I don't like paying to park at Pont City Market to then go get something to eat or maybe do some shopping or head across the street. And, and by the way, a pedestrian bridge uh, to uh, to a Home Depot would be nice. Uh, <laughs> TJ Maxx, et cetera, and so on. But, uh, but also to the, to the Kroger as well. I mean, you know, when the weather's not nice, uh, I don't want to get in my car and have to fight to find a parking space at Kroger to get my groceries if I can hop on the streetcar, you know, take a couple of my uh, reusable bags and get my groceries and come back. I, I, that's when the usability starts to come to be. And sure. so uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there'll be a lot of folks who use it uh, for a host of reasons we're not thinking about right now or mm-hmm. we don't talk about publicly. Uh, and that's what you you want in a, a major connected city. You want to be able to walk out of your door and whether you walk somewhere, hop on a bike, hop in your car, uh, or have access to transit, you can live your life in a connected way. And we're, we're blessed on the east side. We have, at least my district is, is bordered by a north-south heavy rail line, an east-west heavy rail line, mm-hmm. significant bus connection, uh, increasing number of bike lanes, uh, and sidewalks that need some love. We're putting money into it, and now a streetcar expansion that's gonna gonna add to the attractiveness of this this part of town. And if it gets expanded to the west side, which is all on the table, uh, that's gonna benefit benefit us all. But for real, we gotta we gotta we gotta show some love to Cobb County. We've got to get that line to the battery at some point in time. Marta's got to get me to the battery. I cannot stand parking uh, and paying fifty dollars to watch a break. We got to get to the battery. I, I don't even need you to comment on that if you don't want to. But can we get a line to the battery for crying out loud? This is this is a decision for uh, other people, for know. Cobb County voters <laughs> and, and residents uh, who, for a long time, have pushed back on it. Uh, and you mentioned race, which is a central reason that's been the case over the decades. But I. I suspect that when you have population and job centers like the battery attractions, uh, there's going to be increasing demand for ways to get there other than uh, in your car. And Cobb's a blue county now. Stacy's carried it twice, and and Hillary won it. Joe won it's it's a blue county. It's a different county now. I'm just saying. Uh, listen, my last question to you is a little bit of a personal one. Uh, given the climate politically between the United States, as it's been for most of my life, between the United States and and Iran. Tell me what it's like to be an Iranian American in these times with uh, us, us going from the ebbs and flows of we've, we've got a nuclear deal and, and could we see a, a turning of the page and, and maybe even see a, a little bit of a, a thawing of relations between. T- just tell me what that's like to experience. All- and by the way, you got to go to the White House recently, so maybe you got to put a bug in, in, in Joe's ear about something. <laughs> tell me what this is all like. Yeah, this is a, this is a whole other podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just- Quick uh, background for, for the, your listeners. I'm born and raised in Atlanta, born in Northside Hospital back in the 70s. My father's from Iran. My mother is uh, from Augusta, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Eighth, gener- eighth, eighth generation Georgian. So two very different sides of the family. Uh, but yeah, for my entire life, uh, say for the first two years or so, the U.S. and Iran had been at odds and uh, not not friends. Um, I think that's not true at the personal level. You go to the streets of Iran and yeah, folks are very us. embracing of, of, of America and, and uh, very welcoming. Um, but you know, now is I think 
today, especially the interesting time because you've seen significant unrest in Iran over the last year, uh, galvanized by the death of a a woman, by the uh, beating by the morality police for not wearing a, uh, a head covering properly. And that was a flashpoint for a lot of other, I think, opposition to the government, uh, which is um, not always uh, done best by the people economically and, and socially. And so you see these tensions boil up. As an Iranian-American, you know, I, I, I ran for city council to work on local issues, but this stuff tends to, to filter into it. Uh, and so I, I, um, I think we all want to see movement toward a democratic uh, regime at some point, allowing people to decide mm-hmm. how best to, to live their lives. And um, there's all sorts of complications within the, the diaspora and different opinions within, within the diaspora. But I'm proud to be both a Southerner and Iranian-American. And I will also note that the Atlanta City Council is the only legislative body in the country to have two Iranian-Americans on it, which is somewhat of a, a surprise because we, we don't have a huge Iranian-American population in Atlanta. There's a good amount in the northern suburbs, but not in the city proper. But it's just by, by chance, we have two Iranian-Americans, which is kind of a neat thing to see. Well, I didn't know we had this in common. I'm from Augusta, Georgia, too. So we got a little bit of Augusta footprint uh, uh, in our DNA there as well. Oh, very cool. Yeah. All right. Listen, I appreciate the time. I want to thank you so much for uh, spending a few minutes to go over a cross-section of issues with us. Amir Faroqi, City Councilman from the City of Atlanta. Thank you for joining The Ron Show. Thanks, Ron. Great to be with you. Hey, don't just listen to The Ron Show. Support The Ron Show. If you and your business would like to have your advertising done on this show, you know, it's pretty easy. You can drop me an email, ron at ronshowetl.com. You can also call me anytime you like, 404-919-2725. You can also... Just be a listener if you don't have a business. I mean, that would be most of you, right? Follow us on your preferred podcast platform by following any of the links we've got provided for you there on the podcast tab at ronshowatl.com. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, links there for you as well. Welcome back to The Ron Show for Monday. It is April 10th, 2023. The reason I give you the date is because that is 10 days from the next scheduled Cherokee County School Board meeting at least according to the Cherokee County website. By the way, I went to their Twitter page. Well, first, let me let me remind you why I'm, why I'm even talking about Cherokee County Schools. Uh, we found out, was it last week? I think in the midst of, yeah, it was, uh, the story broke uh, early uh, on the 3rd or 4th of uh, last week that an ex-WWE wrestler who is now a Cherokee County School official had been kicked out of an event and accused of transphobia. Robert Recksteiner is his name. If you are a WWE aficionado, you may know him as Rick Steiner. And according to Yahoo News, he was banned uh, last Saturday, or a week ago Saturday, from WrestleCon, a three-day event, after allegedly making transphobic comments to trans wrestler Giselle Shaw, who, by the way, said she had witnesses who can confirm and corroborate exactly what she said. Shaw claims that Steiner called her a, quote, piece of trash and filth, as she was preparing to sign autographs for fans. And uh, Shaw said, I was shocked and could not believe that this was even happening. To have somebody saying those comments, who a lot of people look up to and consider their hero, was quite shocking and disheartening. Uh, Yahoo News reports, uh, Steiner, age 62, best known for his tenure with World uh, Championship Wrestling. My apologies, that's a WCW guy, not a WWE guy. Anyway, Back then, he was a seven-time world tag team champion and two-time winner of the tag team championship <laughs> under WWE. Okay, so he, he covers both. Since 2006, though, Steiner, Rob Rex Steiner, has served on the Cherokee County Board of Education. He won a fifth term in 2022 and currently serves as vice chairman. 
He could not be immediately reached Tuesday for comment. Efforts to reach other officials with the district were also unsuccessful as the district is on spring break. That was reported last Tuesday. I went to Cherokee County Schools uh, Twitter page today to, fi- to find out if there was some sort of statement or something that released that would kind of let us know. And uh, the latest thing I see is a retweet from about uh, seven hours ago. The uh, <laughs> the Cherokee County School District word of the week is honesty, truthfulness, and sincerity. It is part of their character education word of the week. <laughs> character education word of the week. Truthfulness, sincerity. That's how you describe honesty. I don't see anything else from their Twitter page that tells us about anything other than the uh, elementary school STEM Academy fifth grader student of the week. Congrats to her. Uh, nothing since March 31st other than that. Not, nonetheless, uh, we have yet to hear from Rob Recksteiner or from the Cherokee County School District about his position on their school board as an apparent transphobe. Not just on the school board, but also their vice chairman and an alleged transphobe. We're going to stay on top of this story. I'm going to keep bringing it up until we hear something from Cherokee County Schools or Mr. Rex Steiner. And by the way, they're all welcome to call the show, 404-919-2725. They're welcome to tweet the show, at Ron Show ATL. They can email me personally, Ron, at RonShowATL.com. Come on the show. Tell us your story. Let us know what you're doing if you're the Cherokee County School District about having an apparent transphobe on your school board, knowing that your student body is watching, your faculty, they're watching. They want to know if someone on your school board, your vice chairman, an alleged transphobe, is going to be allowed to continue to represent the Cherokee County School District with that sort of reputation. We're all watching. We're all waiting. Wait, hang on. There is a new tweet uh, at Cherokee County. I'm sorry, at Cherokee Schools on Twitter. Oh, oh. Mark, mark your calendars. The annual spring plant sales with plants grown by CCSD Ag Program students are uh, this week at Cherokee High School and Etowah High School. Hey, you know what? That's not a bad thing to promote, though. Let's 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 talk that up. That's going on uh, April 12, 13, 14, from 3 to 6 at uh, Etowah High School. Also happening uh, the 13th and 14th from 4 to 6, and April 15th from 9 to 1 at Cherokee High School Greenhouse. Plant sales. There you go. Still, still nothing on uh, Rob Recksteiner, a.k.a. Rick Steiner, on the Cherokee County School Board, also their vice chair, and an alleged transphobe. So before I wrap up the show today, I want to thank uh, City Councilman, my City Councilman, Amir Faroki, City of Atlanta, for uh, spending some time on the show today answering a bevy of questions. I mean, he he said I had a good half hour, 40 minutes later, I think we... <laughs> We got, it. we got it all in there. I want to thank him for joining us. Uh, if you missed any of that today, uh, follow us on any of your preferred podcast platforms and, uh, you know, heart us, like us, give us a good rating and all that good stuff. Uh, I have all the links for you if you'd like at ronshowatl.com. Back tomorrow to unravel, hopefully, 
the whole Mythoprestone saga, is it legal? Is it not? Should you be stocking up? I think you should be stocking up anyway. Uh, we will uh, unravel those stories and more as they break. Tomorrow here on The Ron Show on the America One Radio app and AmericaOneRadio.com. Have yourself a good evening.